Well, good morning. We have a little extended fellowship this morning. That's good. My name's Barton, and this is my first time ever teaching Amen Bible Study. And I get the chapter on sex and church discipline. It's better than coffee at 6.30 in the morning, I'll tell you what. A little bit of background to what we've been talking about so far. Uh, this is Paul's second letter that he's given to the Corinthians. It's the first one that we have in hand, but it's his second letter in total. Uh, he's received some reports from the Corinthians that he's correcting in roughly the first seven chapters. He's uh, corrected the division problem that's happening in Corinth. Uh, he's corrected their uh, humility problem, the fact that their problem, that they had no humility, so he was speaking into that. And now he speaks into the major moral problem that was affecting the church. This one man was engaging in the act of incest. Now that was just a symptom of the underlying problem. In fact, sexual immorality was all in that church, but this one major instance is what sparred on this conversation. But what I want us to look closely at is how Paul handles this deal. He handles it in a, in a very great way that we can learn from and that we can apply to many different uh, scenarios, not just incest, but sexual morality and all sorts of sins. We need to see how Paul handles this. Now, if you open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13, I'll read our passage for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. This is the Word of God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant and puffed up. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of our Lord. Now a little bit of background about the Corinthian situation uh, Corinth was the place to be. It was a very swanky town. Anybody who's anybody wanted to live there. It was a very cool place for young people. It was a ritzy town. It was kind of like New York or New Orleans. But here's the thing about Corinth. It was extremely perverted. It was an extremely sexual, detestable town. 
Even pagans from other cities thought so. They had a temple right smack dab in the middle of Corinth uh, dedicated to, who's dedicated to? Aphrodite that had a thousand prostitutes in it. One temple of many had a thousand prostitutes. I mean, that put Las Vegas to shame. Had a thousand prostitutes in it. They had another temple dedicated to Apollo that was dedicated for homosexual activity. It wasn't a hangout place, but it was a temple dedicated for homosexual activity. That was right there in the center of Corinth. STDs were at all-time high in Corinth. They have a way to fight that. There were open marriages. There were orgies. Uh, There was mass gender confusion. And pagans from other cities thought that Corinth was even detestable. uh, The Aristophanes said, he coined a phrase, Aristophanes. He said, to act like a Corinthian is to fornicate. Talk about city pride, right? Go Grizz. But he said, to act like a Corinthian is to fornicate. Plato said uh, he called prostitutes from other towns Corinthian girls. I'm sure their mothers were very proud. Other prostitutes were called Corinthian girls. Corinth was a very sexually immoral uh, city. Now, here's the problem. All of that sexual immorality and sin was spilling into the church. Corinth was made up of former pagans that lived in that culture, and they were carrying all this sin into their church. Now, the kicker is the church one-upped the culture. There's a man that commits incest, which Cicero said, he's only heard of that once before. That's even unheard of among the pagan world. Now, here's the thing about incest. We're not sure if this guy was sleeping with his birth mother or his stepmother. In fact, it was probably his stepmother, but either way, we can say that's kind of icky, right? Good rule of thumb. If she's your mom, don't take her to prom. It's a good golden rule. Good golden rule. But we say to ourselves, Corinth, this is a detestable place. There's no way we can relate to it. But let's think about some statistics. Last year, the United States, uh, the porn industry, had more revenue than the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, and the NHL combined. America spent more money on porn than those things. Every single day, there's 116,000 searches for child pornography on the Internet. Every single day. Council of Sexual Education uh, and Sexual Addiction estimates that roughly 21.5 million people in America alone are full-blown sex addicts. A little bit closer to home, uh, it's estimated that 61% of high school seniors are uh, having intercourse, and 23% of those 61% have multiple partners. Uh, There's an article in Memphis that I looked up, and they said between uh, 2006 and 2010, this is a national statistics, about half of the women between ages of 15 and 44 cohabitated with their partners. And this is not to mention uh, the issue of slavery, which is a major issue in the world, including Memphis. And not to mention the acts of adultery and the normal sexual temptations that godly men struggle with every single day. Sexual sin and sexual immorality is still very much a problem 2,000 years after the fact. Now, this is what I want us to see, how Paul deals with that situation. The first thing in verses 1 through 2, Paul urgently names the two sins that were plaguing this church. In part A, in verse 1, we see that he wastes no time naming the sexual sin. Paul just calls it as it is. He goes, listen, there's someone among you Sleeping with your mother. That is sinful. If Paul was an American, he would have been a northerner because he was blunt. Down south, we tend not to be that blunt. If there's something like that happening or 
you know, uh, just a huge sin or something that's a little taboo, we tend to sweep it under the rug because as Southerners, we're polite people and we don't want to make a stink of things. And we certainly don't want to call out sin in other people's life because that opens us up to criticism and no one wants that. That's kind of the Southern way. A few years ago, John Piper, uh, you know, he said that the problem really facing American Christianity right now is pornography and masturbation. And he gave a sermon about it behind the pulpit because he thought this needed to be addressed. Now, he received not even a day afterwards dozens of emails from people in his church saying, John, how could you talk about such a thing? Something so detestable behind the pulpit. This is the house of God for crying out loud. But he stuck to his guns and so does Paul. He goes, listen, we have to call these things out. This is a serious issue. He calls out the sin for what it is, sinful Now, nextly, I want to see that he calls out, or Paul is urgent to call out all sexual sin. Now, this is important. Paul uses the word pornonia. Now, pornonia is a junk drawer word. You look in your junk drawer, and there's all sorts of stuff in that drawer. That's why it's called a junk drawer. I got all sorts of stuff in my junk drawer. It's overflowing. That's what pornonia means. All sexual sin. All sexual activity outside the confines of marriage and loving your wife, Paul calls pornonia. Now look how serious he takes this in those two verses. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, pornonia. Paul says, your will, or the God's will for you, is for you to become more like Jesus. Then the first thing he says to abstain from is pornonia. Now we all have our struggles and we're not leaning on our record as Christians, we're leaning on Christ's record and that's good news. But Paul says, listen, you've got to call your sin what it is. It's sinful. We have to call it out and we have to be honest with ourselves of what it is. It's sinful. Now why do we call it out? I think it's so we can kill it. John, in his epistle, his first epistle, says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now hopefully uh, we're in accountability groups and we've been in accountability groups before when we go in there and we tell our accountability partners, hey, I'm struggling with some stuff. If you could just pray for me, that'd be fantastic. We do that a lot. But if we do that, nothing's going to happen because we're not putting a face and a name to our sin. And we're not shining light on it. And we're not killing it. Well, how do we kill our sin? We kill our sin by the power of the Spirit of God. Romans 8 says it's by the Spirit that we put to death our sins. Paul says, listen, don't fool around with whatever sin that you're keeping secret. Shine light on it and kill it. Now, the second sin that he names, and he wastes no time in doing so, is the underlying sin, pride. Now, this is what was really at the core issue. Paul says, and you are arrogant about this, prideful. Now, Corinth again. Honor and shame was a huge deal back then. It's a big deal today, but it was especially a big deal back then. Now, here's honor. Honor had everything to do with your lot in life back in Corinth had everything to do with uh, how rich you are or how much you knew about your attainment of human wisdom, whatever spiritual attainment that you had, that's honorable. Whatever you did with your body in the carnal sense, whatever you did, uh, whoever you threw your body on, had nothing to do with your honor in the ancient world, especially in Corinth. Those things were completely separate. Now, shame. 
Shame is something that superiors would give their subordinates in order to put them in their place. A subordinate was never able to shame their superior. That just never happened because it wasn't their place to do so. Now, most scholars think the guy in the church was a superior, basically that he was an untouchable, and people didn't want to call him out. But in addition to that, they were struggling with their sexual sins too. And they saw this guy doing what he was doing, so they cheered him on. They said, good job, Bob. Continue doing what you're doing, man. You're a free-minded Christian. You doing what you're doing, I'll do what I do, and we're going to have a great time. That's what was happening in Corinth. Now, in addition to that, they had a gross misunderstanding of godly wisdom, which Sandy talked about, and they had a horrible misunderstanding of what Christian freedom was. Now, all those things combined made them licentious believers. Now, there's two things that we take from that. One, whatever you believe, your doctrine directly affects your behavior. Directly affects it. Whatever we view of our uh, posture before God as sinful men before a just and holy God, whatever you view about that and whatever you view of your position in Christ, that in Christ you're a little Christ, you're covered in his righteousness. If we had those two things out of whack, you're either going to be a legalist or a licentious believer. The Corinthians were licentious believers. Whatever you believe about God and yourself and Jesus and salvation will directly affect how you live the Christian life. Secondly, Paul intends for us to have a high view of morality and people. He wants us to approach sin by having a high view of both people and moral, moral or what's that word? Moral purity. Now, there's different ways to approach our sin. One, you can have a low view of both. An example would be a mother who doesn't really care about whatever her kids do, and she doesn't really have a high, pen, a high opinion of moral purity. So, that case, she'll be indifferent. She won't care if he's smoking pot, and she'll probably make him those special brownies. That's indifference. The Corinthians had a high view of people, but a low view of moral purity. They said, hey, listen, we're Christians. We're in Christ. We're perfect. Therefore, we can do anything we want. That's licentious believing. Paul says this is how Christians are supposed to approach sin. You have a high view of both. We have a high view of our brothers and sisters because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love them. They're made in the image of God. We cherish them. We love them. But we also have a high view of moral purity because, moral, because sin is evil. And God is just and holy. And if we're Christians, we love what God loves and we hate what he hates. Therefore, when the people that we love are enslaved to things that God hates, it makes us mourn. Paul says the Christian response to sin is mourning. He says, be, be diligent with it. Be urgent with it. Name it for what it is. It's sin. Then mourn over it. Now, that's that first section. In the second section, in verses 3 through 5a, Paul says that sin must be dealt with accordingly. Now, oftentimes, whenever I read Paul, I think that joker had ADD. I mean, he is all over the place sometimes. Verses 3 through 5 is one sentence with like six or seven subordinate clauses. I think um, Charles Hodges' translation is the best, and it's printed right there on your, uh, on your, on your handout. Read that later. But what Paul is talking about here, delivering this man over into Satan's realm. And by the way, Paul is not saying we're going to put this person in Satan's clutches personally. He's saying that we're going to take him out of the church where Satan does not rule. To the place where Satan does currently, the world. That's what Paul is talking about. Now this is church discipline. And I have to be honest with you. I have no experience with it. I'm a very young pastor. Um, so thankfully I'm leaning on the experiences and wisdom of some of our older pastors, which I'm forever thankful. 
However, I do know as Christians, when we think about church discipline and when we approach it, we have to have love and mercy and grace in our hearts for those people, for whoever's under church discipline. Because if we don't, it's not effective church discipline and it's not glorifying to God. But here's what we have to know about this section. There's three things. One, we must remember that this guy was an unrepentant sinner. Okay? All of us are sinners. We all have struggles. We're all covered in the grace of God. We have the church to come alongside us to help us live the Christian life. But this guy was non-repentant. And he was flamboyant about his sin. He did not care what anybody thought. He did it his way, not God's way. So Paul says we have to kick this guy out. Now you say that sounds very cruel and unloving. It's extremely loving, and we'll see why in a second. But the first thing I want us to understand about church discipline, that the power behind it is Jesus Christ. Paul is exercising his apostolic authority, but it is Christ who is moving through him and exercising his authority through Paul where this, this pronouncement is announced. Paul says it's in the name of Jesus that we do this. Second, we must understand that Paul is not being vindictive. It's not like he's looking at Bob and saying, I don't like Bob, therefore he's out. This isn't a country club. That's not how Paul is handling the situation. But it's a judgment pronounced in the name of Jesus. Thirdly, this is an announcement that has to be carried out by the body. Paul says this is family business. It's family business that we carry out in the name of the Lord, and we must do it in the name of Christ for Christ. This is a prophetic judgment that's carried out in the name of Jesus, and it's family business that's done by the power of Jesus. First and foremost, the power of church discipline is, in fact, Jesus. Now, secondly, I want us to see that Christians are sinners, and Christ gives us the help that we need. We're all a bunch of knuckleheads that need help. Now, the good news is, if you're in Christ, even the worst of us will always be in Christ. That's the good news. Philippians 1.6, he will bring about a completion to the good work that he has started in you. That is fantastic news. But even in his grace, he knows that we need help along the way to live out the Christian life. And he gives us that help. One, he gives us his word. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, underlined, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We all have goofy ideas sometimes about God and how to live out the Christian life. And we all know that we're in desperate need for correction and for help. That's what the word's for. It's a lamp unto our feet to show us how to live the Christian life. Not only does God reveal himself to us in his word, you get to meet God in his word. And not only does he reveal his will for us to be found in Christ Jesus through faith, he also shows us how to live a life pleasing to God. He helps us live out the Christian life through his word. We have to be students of the Bible. Secondly, he helps us through afflictions. I don't understand this. And I don't know if I even like it, but it's true. We see that all throughout Scripture. We see that in the book of Job, and we see that in the life of Paul himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, he says that he received a thorn that kept him from being conceited. God helps us through afflictions, through loss of job, loss of life, loss of limb. Jesus will get his brothers and sisters home. Hope we don't have to experience those things, but it's a blessing nonetheless. Thirdly, he helps us through his church. I used to be a campus pastor at Rhodes College, and every single year, the freshmen would ask me what church they should join, because they're from out of town. And after I tried to sell Second Presbyterian on them, unabashedly, 
I said, well, you know what? There's plenty of wonderful churches in Memphis, but here's some guidelines the reformers gave us to find out what a healthy church would look like. One, a healthy church is one that faithfully preaches the word. Don't go to a church that sacrifices the word of God in order to put butts in the seats. That's not a church. No games, no gimmicks, as the rapper says. We go to a church that faithfully preaches the word. Secondly, we go to a church that rightly administers the sacraments. Thirdly, we go to a church that has church discipline in play. A church that does not have church discipline in play is not a family. Families have discipline. Just like good parents who love their children will discipline them, Paul says that a church that loves its members will discipline them. Now, the famous uh, verse or passage in the Bible about church discipline is Matthew 18. That's the beauty part of church discipline. It's very intimate. It's one-on-one. It's personable. It's when one person goes to another brother that's in sin and speaks to him one-on-one, loves them, listens to them, and tries to gently take them out of their sin. If that doesn't work, he goes to get another guy. Then two dudes come to the person in sin, and they try to gently carry him out of sin. And if that doesn't work, the man refuses to repent. They take him before the church. But that's informal. What's happening here is formal church discipline. Sanctions have taken place. Excommunication is about to happen. Now, I don't pretend that's an easy thing. I know it's difficult and it's very, very sad. But it is a blessing. Paul helps, or or Jesus helps his church. He helps his family through church discipline. And he even helps the people under church discipline, which we're about to see. But the most important thing is if we're going to do this, we have to be an encouraging church. Your church, whatever church you're a member to, has to be an encouraging church. We have to love each other. And we have to listen to each other. And we have to be intimate with each other and speak into each other's life if church discipline is ever going to be effective and glorifying to God. But nextly, in verses 5b through 8, Paul finally gives us the purposes of church discipline, and they're fantastic. He says that you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival Not with old leaven, the leaven of malice of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The first purpose of church discipline is to restore the sinner. Now it's important for us to remember that this church discipline that Paul is carrying out is remedial. In no way is Paul judging this man's soul. In fact, Paul is quite clear in verses 9 through 13 that that's God's business. God is who judges the soul of believers and non-believers. What is happening right here is remedial for his help, for his correction. In verse 9, in fact, Paul even calls him a brother. That's an intimate word. Paul calls him a brother. This is a remedial action for the purpose of restoring the believer. Now, there's two aspects of that. The first one is for the destruction of the flesh. Graphic. Paul says that we're going to hand this man over to Satan's realm for the destruction of the flesh. Now, what in the world does that mean? Many people mean or think that it means some sort of physical harm or physical ailment, something that we might see in Job. 
Other people, most people believe this, which I happen to agree with, that whenever Paul uses the word flesh or sarks, that's the Greek word for flesh, it's always in connection with sinful desires. The sinful desires of your flesh. So Paul is saying, we're going to hand this guy over to Satan's realm for the destruction of his sinful desires. That sounds a little backwards. How in the world is that going to work? Sending this man into Satan's realm for the purpose of his sinful desires being destroyed. How in the world does that work? What Paul is shooting for is shock therapy. Okay? That's what it is. Shock therapy. Imagine a tub full of ice water. Some of us are athletes. I'm not, but some of us are. Some of us have been athletes. You know, if you get a pulled groin or a deep bone bruise, one of the treatments is to get in a tub of ice water. You get in a tub of ice water, what's the first thing you want to do? Get the heck out, right? You got freezing water all over your your body, your parts. You want to get out of there. It's horrible. Paul's saying that if this man is in Christ, if he's truly a believer, the first thing that he'll want to do is to repent. And to resubmit himself under the discipline and the authority of the church because he desperately want to get out of Satan's realm. Shock therapy, the destruction of the flesh, restoration of the sinner. The second aspect is his eschatological salvation. All right? We can experience salvation in the present, absolutely. But Paul says when Christ returns, our salvation will be fully realized. And much more important to Paul than this person being mad at him and ruffling his feathers is his eschatological salvation. Good parents will sacrifice their kids being mad at them in order to see that they mature in Christ and they're corrected from living wrongly. If you grew up in a household like that, count your blessings. Paul says so it is with the church. Now the really cool part is this actually worked. (laughs) In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, you can look at there later, the man deeply repents. In fact, the entire church deeply repents. There's a deep, heartfelt repentance there because of this, and this man was received warmly back into the church. The restoration of the sinner. That's the first purpose of church discipline. The second purpose is, and the most important purpose is to honor Christ and protect his church. Let's talk about that second part. Paul gives us a kitchen analogy to describe this. My wife of eight months is a phenomenal cook. I've gained 20 pounds. I call it my death star. I love it. All right? One of the things that she cooks all the time is sourdough bread. Now, this is how you cook sourdough bread. You get a little chunk of last week's bread, leaven, and you let it ferment. You let it ferment for you know, a few days or a week. Then you take that piece of fermented bread and you add it to the new batch. It makes it fluffy and delicious. And the purpose is you can carry one piece of old bread on for a year if you want to. That's how you can do sourdough bread. Now, back in the olden days, that was dangerous because that spread disease. All right? It's, if you, it's kind of nasty if you think about it. You have an old chunk of bread making new batches of bread. It spread disease. Now, in the Old Testament, when they were celebrating the Passover meal, they were commanded to have leaven nowhere near the meal or their house. Because not only was it dangerous, but it symbolized the old way of living. It symbolized the old way of living, and it also symbolized evil. Because just as leaven spreads and contaminates all the new batches, so does evil. It's like eating a delicious Subway sandwich. This happened to me not too long ago. 
Get that delicious foot long. You stack all the delicious meats and cheeses on there, all the vegetables, all the lettuce. You get one ounce of bad lettuce on that. You know exactly where we're going to be spending the rest of the afternoon. Am I right? In St. John's. It ruins the sandwich. It contaminates everything. Leaven contaminates everything. Sin contaminates everything. It spreads. It multiplies. That's the very nature of sin. This is how it's played out in the church. Leader Bob over here is getting away with unrepentant, flamboyant sin. No one's doing anything about it. It's uh, ruining the witness. Then everybody else says, man, if Bob is doing that, I'm going to push the envelope. It's like a first grade teacher. If she doesn't take care of that one jack wagon in the front row, it's going to be mass chaos in the classroom. Cats and dogs living together. It's going to be crazy. Paul says that's, how, that's, what, that's what sin does. It spreads. It multiplies. Therefore, remove the leaven. And ourselves individually and in the church is for the protection of the church. Now the third purpose of church discipline we see in uh, 7b through 8 is to encourage believers to live as they are, new creations. You got a nice, handy, dandy book by Leon Morris. Uh, If you haven't read it, read it. The guy knows what he's talking about. It's fantastic. I'm going to get you in it this morning. How he explains uh, 7b through 8, I can do no better. And so I'm going to read from it, and it's terrific. On page 91, write this down, look at it later. Leon writes, In Egypt, they had offered their sacrifice in order that the destroying angel might pass over them. He's talking about the Exodus account in the Old Testament. They had been delivered, and a slave rabble emerged as the people of God. Paul is using this imagery to remind his readers that the death of Christ had delivered them from slavery to evil and made them the people of God. There's an emphasis on the emergence to new life. And on page 90 at the very bottom, Paul does not say you ought to be without yeast but states it as a fact that is what Christians actually already are. Now what's Leon talking about and what's Paul talking about? Imagine that there's a homeless man. He doesn't have two nickels to rub together, no food, no home, and to survive, the only thing he knows to do is to pick around for leftovers and garbage cans behind restaurants. That's what he's doing. Now, say, for example, that he's behind Folks Folly or something. Then the chef of Folks Folly comes out and sees this man, and he has pity on him. He has compassion in his heart, and he wants to show him grace and love. So he goes back in the kitchen, and he whips up the most delicious meal imaginable. He gets the best cut of steak. It's seasoned perfectly. I mean, it is delicious. There's all the side trimmings, mashed potatoes, asparagus. There's a giant glass of sweet tea, and he carries it out and gives it to this homeless man. Because I want to offer this to you freely. Then the man looks up at the chef and says, thank you so very much, but I'd much rather eat this garbage. That would never happen. That's what Paul's saying. As Christians, don't you realize what Christ has done for you? And don't you realize what Christ has offered you? Don't you realize who you are in Christ? You are a new creation. And the cool thing about it is that you didn't have to do anything. You simply believe in Christ and there you are, a new creation. You didn't have to achieve that. It was accomplished for you. You have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in you. You have a new heart. 
You are freed from the enslaving powers of this world. And as Christians in Christ as new creations, you are enabled to live unto righteousness by the power of the Spirit. Why in the world are you turning back to the old way? You don't have to anymore. It is garbage. You don't need that. You're not enslaved to it. You're free in Christ. Live as you already are. Quit playing with the trash. Know that you are kings in Christ. And know that you've been made new creations in Christ. And furthermore, he calls this a festival. He says, enjoy it for crying out loud. Don't you realize you can live in freedom in Christ? Why are you messing with the things of this world that you know will enslave you? You're free from it. Live unto Christ. Purposes of church discipline. One, for the restoration of the believer the destruction of his sinful desires and his eschatological salvation. Two, the protection of the church. And three, for the church to remember who they are in Christ, new creations, and for us to live that way. And here's the thing. Paul intends that for the person in question. And he actually did. He remembered who he was in Christ. He remembered he was a new creation. He was welcomed warmly back into the church. The image there is of the prodigal son where the father is waiting for that prodigal son to return with open arms. That's what Paul did. That's what the church did. And that's what we do. And that's great news. Those are the purposes of church discipline. Lastly, in 9 through 13, Paul clears up some misunderstanding. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then that you would need to go out of this world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of so on and so forth. Now Paul, somewhere along the line, communicated to these Corinthians that they're not to have sexual relations with non-believers. They're not to be in covenant with non-believers. But somewhere along the line, these folks thought that Paul meant that they're not to have relationship at all whatsoever with non-believers. And Paul just affirms the fact that they are supposed to have associations with non-believers. He says it's absolutely ridiculous not to. In fact, it's impossible. Okay? You go to the supermarket, you go to the bank, you have people in your family, people that you went to school with, you're surrounded by non-believers. Of course you're supposed to have relationships with non-believers. That's fine. That's good. You're supposed to have that. Some of my very best friends in the world are non-believers. They're not swindlers, according to my pocketbook. But they're my friends. You know, we have friends with non-believers. Paul affirms that for the purpose of, that's the mission of the church, to engage non-believers. That's the mission of the church, to engage non-believers. We call that evangelism. That's, Second Pres is very serious about evangelism. Any church that's serious about the Great Commission is serious about evangelism. Our mission is to go out there, to proclaim Christ to the world, to witness Christ, to hopefully see people come to faith in Jesus. Then we bring them back into the church. It's not a, a ploy. It's not a Ponzi scheme. We love people, and we know that this is what people ultimately need. So we want to point them to Christ and bring them into the church. That's the mission of the church. That's absolutely impossible if you don't have relationships with people that are not believers. Now, another mission of the church is to see people mature in Christ. And sometimes that means church discipline. And that's what Paul affirms next. He says, I do affirm you not to associate with unrepentant sinners who claim Christ. Now here's why. For the sake of the witness of the church. In the Old Testament, we see King Solomon with the people of Israel. 
And Queen Sheba comes up to them and sees all that they are in God. She sees their worship and what God has done for them. And she confesses that the Lord is good, that, she, that He has blessed Israel. We are a witness to a fallen world, to a fallen city as the church. We're supposed to express Christ and to emulate Christ and to mirror Christ's character and His gospel and His love and His grace to the world. If there is someone that is living in flagrant, unrepentant sin that's boasting about it, that ruins the witness, that mars the witness. Secondly, it's for the good of the church. and We've already talked about that. Thirdly, it's for the good of the, of, for the, good of the brother. It's for the good of the brother. We saw this. It's for his restoration. It's for his sanctification. It's for his eschatological salvation. Church discipline's hard. And like I said, I have no experience in it barely. I know it's difficult. But it is a blessing from God. Because he blesses his church with it. He blesses our family. He protects us. And he also blesses the people in question. And that's what we have to remember. When we approach church discipline, when we approach each other just simply in our accountability groups, when we speak truth into each other's lives, we do it as brothers, right? Because we love each other. And we're coming alongside each other, hoping and seeking for us to become more and more like Christ together. And that is beautiful family business. And that's our passage. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, even the hard passages. And we thank you for reminding us that it's not our righteousness or our record that we stand on, but it's Christ's record that we stand on. Help us to remember that, especially when we struggle with whatever sin we're struggling with. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the freedom and the humility in our hearts to confess to one another whatever we're struggling with. That we would shine light on our sin. That we would come alongside the brothers and sisters who love us. That we would feel secure in your love. And that together we would seek to stamp out our sin. God, we need you for this. We need to be reminded of the power of the gospel and we pray that we would experience it every moment of our lives. We love you and we pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.